This podcast is free and it's accessible to everyone thanks to support from listeners like you. If you value this show, please consider supporting its production by donating to our home, KUOW. It only takes a minute to give and you'll be helping to support the production of this podcast. Make a donation at KUOW.org or follow the link in the show notes. And thanks. As much of the world continues to stay inside practicing social distancing, vibrant cities have gone quiet and given us a glimpse of what the world might be like without us in it. Jeffrey Brown. Remember back to March 2020, reports of nature coming back into our cities during lockdown, wildlife filling the empty space humans had left behind. In southern India, a herd of elephants took over a road usually filled with traffic. Mobs of monkeys in Thailand fighting over food in the streets. No tourists there to feed them. Near Barcelona, Spain, wild boar descended from the hills and grazed in hedges that divide the boulevards. And a group of mountain goats that took over a small town in Wales. Residents said their new neighbours were eating leaves and bushes in the town square. Right here at home in the Pacific Northwest, I noticed birds seem to be singing more loudly. Or, or maybe I could just hear them now. Lockdown was a hard time for all of us. But seeing all these reports gave me just a little bit of joy. It confirmed to me something I've long believed. That if we just give nature half a chance, it'll come back with force. Life is resilient. I think that this last year has proven that. But what would happen if we didn't just get out of the way? What if we actively helped wildlife thrive in our cities all the time? In this episode, we'll look at what one city has done, how they redesigned their built environment to benefit humans and wildlife, and how it was all made possible by the force of a destructive earthquake. From KUOW in Seattle, I'm Chris Morgan. Welcome to the wild. Check, 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 check. All right, I'm just going to connect with the producer of The Wild here, Matt Martin. He's down in Seattle, and he's been looking into something pretty interesting. All right, calling now. Hello? Hey, there he is. Hey, Matt, how's it going? (laughs) Good, how's it going, Chris? (laughs) It's good. It's good. I'm looking forward to this. This is the... First time we've done it this way, right? Yeah, and this is my this is my first time actually in a real recording studio in like over a year. <laughs> Whoa, that's a crazy thought. How does it feel? Uh, I had to remind myself what all the buttons do, but I think I, I think <laughs> I figured it out. <laughs> Good. I think my setup here at home is a lot easier. I've got one button to press and that's it. So hopefully we're good. <laughs> yeah. Um, Podcast professionals. <laughs> yeah. So, okay, I I know you've got a a really interesting story to share with us, but before you dive in, you were telling me about a little uh, wildlife encounter you had not long ago. Yeah, you know, so we've been thinking about 
wildlife, especially, you know, during this time of lockdown. And, you know, a year ago when we started working from home, I started making this like three mile loop walk every morning. It was my COVID walk. Just go and walk around the neighborhood. And I kept on seeing coyotes. I saw multiple coyotes every morning. And there's one morning I was going on the walk and the mailman like flagged me down and brought me over. And he was like, be careful. He's like, I just saw a coyote around the corner. And I got like super excited. I was like, coyote, awesome. And I like, I, I think the mailman was surprised because he seemed really concerned. And I was just like, he, he was surprised that you were excited. I was excited. I was like, coyote, awesome. I want to go check this You're out. Like, I'm Matt from the wild. That's why I'm excited. Yeah. <laughs> and what happened? I went around the corner and the coyote was having a squirrel for breakfast. And uh, it was a great way to start off my day. And the coyote just sort of went about his business yeah, and the coyote didn't really... just looked at me and then just went back to having breakfast. Didn't even care that I was there. Have you seen that before in Seattle, like, like near where you live? I've seen three coyotes so far, just in this last year of going on those walks. That's pretty amazing. I love it, you know, how we're kind of in among nature and it, it's in and among us even in big cities like like seattle and it's kind of a lead into what you're going to tell us about today right yeah so we're going to do things a little bit different i'm going to be sharing a story today and it's about how we can use our built environments to help the wildlife that lives among us every day awesome i love it take it away so I first wanted to learn a bit more about the relationship between our built environments and nature. So I called up Connor O'Shea. He's an assistant professor of landscape architecture at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. I don't think of nature as something that happens out there in the preserves or in these wilderness areas. I think of the city and nature actually as a matrix that's sort of one in the same. Connor thinks a lot about how we could better incorporate wildlife into our cities. He told me this is something that we've never really done before. Healthy ecosystems weren't really top of mind during the Industrial Revolution and the birth of the modern city. You have jobs um, and factories uh, in close proximity to each other. And so um, cities are, are compact, but they're also heavily polluted. These new cities were efficient, streamlined, and limitless. There was this idea that we could design our way out of nature, you know, that we were something different. I say in that era, there's also, there's no sense that, that cities were being designed for wildlife. We could sort of drink from the well of nature and it would never sort of go dry. Um, I think that's in the sort of rapid expansion of cities in, post, post-war, in the post-war era. Um, there was a sense that maybe we weren't really doing any harm. Um, and, then, and then we began to realize that there were limits to the expansion. But here's the problem. Our cities are built at this point. We can't just bulldoze the length of Manhattan and rebuild it in a way that benefits wildlife. But perhaps we could find different ways or opportunities to make changes. And therefore, with that mindset, we need to retrofit our cities There's a perfect example of how we can retrofit our cities right here in Seattle, where I live. And it all started with an act of God. We have a huge earthquake going on. The tower is collapsing. I say again, the tower is falling apart. Hang on, everybody. 20 years ago, Seattle was hit with a 6.8 magnitude earthquake. That's a serious earthquake. It was known as the Nisqually earthquake. In less than one minute, it did at least $2 billion worth of damage. 
But this earthquake would open up a surprising opportunity to do something good for one of the Pacific Northwest's most important creatures. On a recent sunny morning, I went down to that waterfront to meet up with someone who could tell me all about it. It's our first day of doing this since 2019, so uh, <laughs> I think my excitement is going to cancel all the freezing water. That's my thought. This is Jason Toft. He's a research scientist at the University of Washington. He's getting ready to do some snorkel surveys just off downtown Seattle. The survey is to count the number of juvenile salmon on their outmigration to the ocean. So do you know what the temperature of the water is right now? Uh, you we, just don't want to know. <laughs> no, we're nerdy scientists, so we'll take a measurement here. Um, my guess is it's 8 degrees in the measurement that no Americans use, so that would be like <laughs> upper 40s. The skyline of Seattle is towering over us and traffic buzzes by. Not the typical place you'd find a wildlife researcher. I'm really an urban ecologist, and so Seattle is in this unique location. I mean, much of downtown Seattle is built on fill. This all used to be tide flats. I'm meeting Jason at the base of the Seattle seawall. It's a 7,000-foot-long concrete wall that creates Seattle's downtown waterfront. For those of you unfamiliar with the layout of Seattle, the city was built right on the edge of Puget Sound, an inlet of the Pacific Ocean. There's also the Duwamish River that cuts through the heart of the industrial part of the city. You know, you see Harbor Island right now where those cranes are. And so that's where the Duwamish River actually flows into Puget Sound. The Duwamish is an important river for salmon migration. So whenever a pretty big river flows into Puget Sound, you have this kind of interconnected mud flats, tide flats, and smaller and channels feeding in. Just imagine kelp beds and eelgrass, the type of nearshore ecosystems that are crucial foraging habitats for juvenile salmon. The fish like to stick close to the shoreline on their journey out to the ocean. It provides food and protection from predators. But now things look quite different. As the frontier city of Seattle started to grow, it needed to protect buildings on the waterfront and create a deep water port. So they started construction of a giant concrete wall. And you have infrastructure built close to shore for obvious reasons, right? You have a lot of shipping and industry. and. You know, over, the, over time, that just gets built up. The original seawall was completed in 1934 and now acts kind of like an underwater castle fortress for the city. Seattle being built and the seawall um, being here, it's really um, changed the shoreline um, in a drastic way. This is Juhi Lafuente. She's a research assistant who works with Jason. That has impacted um, fish, especially juvenile salmon, um, to the point where this isn't what they're normal, they're used to. Goodbye tide flats, hello Space Needle. Without the seawall, the downtown Seattle as we know it wouldn't exist. It, it is protecting Seattle from high tides, from storms, you know, it's, it's there for a reason. Seattle is known for its famous Pike Place Market. You know, where the fishmongers throw the day's catch around to impress the tourists. And that huge Ferris wheel right on the water. All of those things are built on piers coming off of the seawall. So if you've been there, then you've walked on top of the seawall. It may not seem like it, but there's actually wildlife right under your feet. You know, when you're downtown Seattle between you know, April and June, take a look um, down below and, and see if you might, you might see a school salmon. 
you know. This wall is kind of a double-edged sword. It provides families on vacation the opportunity to see wildlife right in the city, but also is a major roadblock to that wildlife. Seawalls are necessary for their infrastructure, but they also cause a lot of ecological impacts to the environment. All of these changes have meant the loss of that nearshore habitat that the baby salmon need. The piers, the ones holding up all those restaurants and tourist shops, they create these shadowy areas on the water, which changes how the fish move through this section. And it's really dark down there. It's pretty scary, um, even for a human who's a lot bigger than a fish. And, um, you know, they, they're, they need light in order to see their prey. So they tend to avoid um, going into dark, scary places as, as any um, animal might. And since they don't like to go into those shadows under the pier, often the fish will swim around them, which is a lot more energy intensive and leaves them more vulnerable to predators. So the salmon had all of those things working against them until 10.54 a.m. on February 28, 2001. The Nisqually earthquake. The quake destroyed a section of the seawall. It would need to be rebuilt. Engineers, design experts, and scientists all saw this as an opportunity to eco-engineer a better path for juvenile salmon. But for a big city like Seattle where you can't technically restore habitat, you're not going to recreate these tide flats right here. Um, again, the ecological engineering is recognizing that and trying to improve ways that you can pour, pour concrete into a seawall and build piers and, and recognize that you can still do a little bit of good in this urban system. So construction began on the new section of the wall in 2013 one that could hopefully improve the ability of the fish to migrate safely through this highly developed ecosystem out to the ocean. This new design differs from the original wall in some subtle but very important ways. The actual surface of the wall is different. Instead of just a smooth concrete wall in the water, they built the wall with textures, you know, bumps and grooves. It looks a bit like a climbing wall that you might find in a gym. And that provides a place for algae and other invertebrates to grow, a main source of food for the fish. And then there's also this shelf that sticks out from the wall several feet below the water. It kind of creates a fake seafloor. We know that many juvenile salmon are looking for shallow water beaches really close to shore. And in this case, where you don't have that, it's trying to mimic that shallow water. Another change that was made were these tiles on the sidewalk. Remember how the fish were scared to go into the shadowy section under the piers? Well, they installed these glass blocks about the size and shape of an old VHS cassette. They embedded them right into the sidewalk that hangs out over the water. Before um, the habitat improvements, we actually didn't see as many salmon underneath the piers than we do now. Jason and his team have observed more feeding behavior from the salmon when the fish are swimming under the glass blocks. And the idea to really have the opportunity to build something that could coexist and meet the needs of the city of Seattle and the, the salmon that outmigrate out of the Duwamish. These all seem like small changes, but as a whole, they really have potential to change how these fish move through the city. The construction on the wall was completed in 2017. You know, if you build it, will they come is, is a great <laughs> way to summarize this. And that's what this team is trying to figure out. 
Jason is hoping that by surveying fish behavior, he can see if this new section of the wall is actually working. When we're snorkeling, we can see if they're feeding or not, which is really cool. So we can see not only where they are, um, but what they're doing. And All suited up, Jason slips into the water. So how's the water feel? Uh, you know, it's not that bad yet. I haven't put my head under, but... <laughs> he flippers off under the pier. You know, the city noise kind of tunes itself out, and you're really there with your clipboard, listening to your breathing, looking around for fish, you know, and the visibility might not be that great, and you might be kind of squinting around, but it's, it's really magical to see a school of fish, you know, swim by you, um, and for you to just be in that headspace. It's just something totally different than, than being downtown Seattle for your daily commute. It's still too early to tell exactly how effective this redesigned wall has been at helping fish. The researchers weren't able to do any surveys at all last year because of COVID, and they're just starting again right now. But the surveys they did in 2018 and 2019 showed that the juvenile salmon are using the habitat close to shore more than they used to, and that they're seeing more feeding behavior. This change in behavior should make their journey easier which will help more of them survive. What Seattle's doing in terms of the habitat modifications for seawalls is, is something that hasn't really been done before. And I think it can be used as a model and example for, for um, coastal cities all over the world um, who, who want to find that balance between the urban environment and the, you know, and the marine environment um, in, in their location. I don't know if you can say that Seattle was lucky for the opportunity to build a fish-friendly wall. I mean, it did take a destructive natural disaster to get there, but it does show what is possible if people really care enough about helping the wildlife among us. The story Matt shared might seem really focused and, and specific to Seattle, but for me, it represents something quite special like the potential for a new approach to the things that we do as humans anywhere in the world. A new approach that includes wildlife, makes space and habitat for wildlife. The whole COVID experience with wildlife returning to unexpected places is an amazing reminder that just giving nature a chance often works. And we can all be a part of giving nature that chance wherever we live, planting native plants, putting up a nest box, letting your lawn go. I did that this spring and it's getting wild. Ferns have popped up and flowers that the insects love. It's very cool to watch nature take back control. And it's all about us letting her. The wild is inspired not just by nature, but by people who work in it, love it, protect it. You can learn more at thewildpod.org. Be sure to check out our Instagram account at thewildpod, and you can find me at Chris Morgan Wildlife. A very special thank you for their kind financial support to Jill and Scott Walker, Rose Letwin, Ellen Ferguson, Anna Kimball, John Taylor, Mark and Rebecca Wilkins, Bob Yellowlease, and Paul Lister. The Wild is a production of KUOW in Seattle and me, Chris Morgan, with support from Wildlife Media. 
Our producer is Matt Martin. Jim Gates is our editor. And our production team includes David Brown, Juan Pablo Chiquiza, April Craig, Cara McDermott, Tio Popescu, Darcy Riggins-Smith, and Brendan Sweeney. Our theme music is by Michael Parker. I'm your host, Chris Morgan. Thanks so much for listening. And if you enjoy The Wild, please do ask your friends to follow our podcast and maybe even give us a review. Thanks so much and take good care. Hey, my name's Claire McGrain and I'm a producer for Seattle Now, KUOW's local news podcast. There is a lot happening in our region, and it's a lot of work to keep track of it all. We'll get you caught up on the latest news and take a deep dive into something happening around the city, all in under 15 minutes. Get a morning walk-in or grab a cup of coffee and start your day with us. Learn something new and connect with our city by searching for Seattle Now wherever you get your podcasts.